0: 1. Introduction. A common field one day, a field of honor forever. This is an audio described tour, an overview program introducing visitors to the Flight 93 National Memorial Visitor Center near Shanksville, Pennsylvania. The tour briefly describes the visitor center, the route to the memorial, and the various elements of the memorial site. You receive this handheld device at the Visitor Center Information Desk, located at one end of a massive, concrete structure that houses the Visitor Center. Please note that there is an open bookstore area to the left as you face the Information Desk. Please direct your attention to your Audio Tour player. Hold the device with the neck cord on the short left side of the device. The operating controls are on the right side of the device. Place the cord around your neck or wrist to ensure that it does not slip from your hands. Hold the device at chest height. The flat screen on the left is for captions. No captions will be displayed on this tour. On the right is a column of tactile buttons. There are two triangular buttons at the top of the column. Beneath these are four crescent-shaped buttons in a circle surrounding a round button. There's a square button underneath the crescent buttons and a final diamond-shaped button at the bottom. The triangular buttons at the top control volume. The crescent-shaped buttons are used at some locations to move up and down through a set of audio menu selections. The north or 12 o'clock crescent button moves the audio menu up, as does the west or 9 o'clock crescent. The South or 6 o'clock Crescent button moves down the audio menu selection list, as does the East or 3 o'clock Crescent. The Circular button in the center is used to select and hear the description of the last menu item read. The Square button is used to both pause and resume play. Note that the Diamond button at the bottom will replay these audio instructions at any time. Be mindful not to block the edge of the device that is facing up. Descriptions or audio menu prompts will play automatically as you come within range of an exhibit or point of interest. To operate the device, merely move through the visitor center holding this device in front of you. Where menu choices are available, the description will instruct you to use the crescent buttons to scroll through the menu list. Use the Crescent Selection buttons to move up and down the list until you hear the desired audio program. Then press the Circular Start button to listen to that segment. When the segment ends, you will be returned to the audio menu, where you may select another topic. Again, the diamond-shaped button may be used to repeat these instructions at any time. This tour has 12 exhibit sections with approximately 81 minutes of content. The tour is organized to follow a recommended route through the exhibits, but again, tour narration or audio menu prompts will play automatically as you come within range of an exhibit or point of interest. Five rectangular displays are spaced throughout the center, extending back and to the right from where you entered the center. Each display, about 5 feet wide, 8 feet tall, and 20 feet long, is positioned so that one of its long ends faces the side of the center where you are standing. You may wish to examine the tactile map of the visitor center, labeled in Braille, on the end of the desk where you received your audio tour player. The order of the tour sections follows. 1. Introduction 2. Exhibit 1A, 3. Exhibit 1B, 4. Exhibit 2A, 5. Exhibit 2B, 6. Exhibit 3A, 7. Exhibit 3B, 8. Exhibit 4A, 9. Exhibit 4B, 10. Exhibit 5A, 11. Exhibit 5B. 12. Overlook Window and Conclusion You are standing in the visitor center of the Flight 93 National Memorial, the nation's memorial to the passengers and crew of Flight 93. It is a rectangular concrete structure, about 160 feet long and 40 feet wide, roughly one-third the size of a football field, and about three stories tall. Its walls are a dark gray, echoing the coal that was for many years mined in this region of Pennsylvania. The rough-hewn texture of the walls reflects the rural nature of the region and, perhaps, the strength and endurance of the people who live here. You are at one end of one of the long sides of the center. Throughout the center, embedded within its concrete and glass walls, are tilted rectangles parallelograms. They suggest the branches of the hemlock trees that are present at the crash site. The shape is often tactile and this tour will note places where you can touch the design. On the morning of September 11, 2001, four commercial airliners were hijacked by al-Qaeda terrorists in a planned attack against the United States. Two were flown into the World Trade Center's Twin Towers in New York City. A third was flown into the Pentagon in Arlington, Virginia. A fourth plane, United Flight 93, a Boeing 757 bound from Newark, New Jersey for San Francisco, California, is delayed for 25 minutes before its scheduled takeoff. After 46 minutes flying, when over Eastern Ohio Hijackers in first class attacked at 9.28 a.m., incapacitating the captain and first officer. Hijackers turned Flight 93 southeast, headed for Washington, D.C., most likely the U.S. Capitol. Just before 10 a.m., the plane was seen flying low and erratically over southwestern Pennsylvania. At 10.03, it crashed upside down at 563 miles per hour into a Somerset County field. There were no survivors. All 33 passengers, seven crew, and four hijackers were killed. This concludes our introduction. The next, second section of our tour is Exhibit 1A. Two, Exhibit 1A. You are now at the first side of Exhibit 1, It focuses on the morning of September 11th, 2001, before the attacks. At the left, a tall panel is labeled an ordinary day. Text reads, an ordinary day, September 11th, 2001, dawns a beautiful late summer day. Skies are remarkably clear and blue over much of the eastern United States. As on any ordinary Tuesday morning, children are in their classrooms and workers at their jobs. Despite a contested election the previous year, newly elected President George W. Bush is enjoying high approval ratings. Congress is back in session. The United States is experiencing a time of relative peace and prosperity. Within hours, that peace is shattered by an unprecedented act of terrorism. Not even this most unlikely of places, a common field near Shanksville, Pennsylvania, is untouched by the events of the day. Affixed to the bottom of the display is a replica of a gavel labeled in braille. Feel free to touch the item. A caption tells us that the September 11th session of the U.S. House of Representatives opens with a tap of the gavel, as it has for more than 200 years. Extending to the right is the first side of the first of five rectangular displays. The background is a color photo mural of the vast, rural Pennsylvania countryside with low hills in the distance and a stretch of plowed earth. At right are several white structures, suggesting a working farm. Along the top of the display are the words... It was a beautiful September morning with a blue sky, just a normal day. Joy Nepp, teacher, Shanksville Stony Creek School. Please note that a ledge or shelf extends along the width of the display, jutting out about 12 inches and at about 2 feet from the bottom of the display. In the middle is a case inset within the display and a plexiglass case that rests on the shelf. Below the photo mural is a timeline containing several paragraphs of text placed along the wide panel. Early morning, in Lower Manhattan, people begin arriving at their offices in the World Trade Center. On a typical day, 50,000 people work in the seven buildings and tens of thousands more pass through the complex. Near Washington, D.C., Employees of the Department of Defense begin their day at the Pentagon, one of the world's largest office buildings. About 23,000 civilian and military employees work at the Pentagon. In the U.S. Capitol in Washington, D.C., members of the House of Representatives open their session at 9 a.m., and the Senate is scheduled to convene at 10 a.m. Both houses are finalizing plans for the state visit by the Australian Prime Minister on September 12th. On a typical weekday when Congress is in session, an estimated 35,000 people work in or visit the buildings on Capitol Hill. President George W. Bush is away from the White House, visiting a second grade classroom in Florida. First Lady Laura Bush is on Capitol Hill preparing to brief the Senate Education Committee. At the White House, staff prepare for the annual congressional picnic, a Texas-style barbecue for Congress and their families that afternoon. Almost 4,500 planes are in flight over the United States. Below these paragraphs is a timeline with text and color photos below. From the left, they are 7 a.m. in rural western Pennsylvania in the town of Shanksville, Rick King walks the block from his home to his business, Ida's Store, and begins brewing coffee for his regular customers. A two-story brick structure with a gabled roof displays an awning labeled Ida's Store. The caption to this photo notes that Ida's Store is a local gathering place in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, a town of 245 people. 7 a.m. At Newark International Airport in New Jersey, Captain Jason Dahl and First Officer Leroy Homer begin preparations to fly United Airlines Flight 93 to San Francisco, California. Below this text is a photo of Lower Manhattan as seen from New Jersey. The World Trade Center Twin Towers rise above the New York City skyline. 7.20 a.m. Flight 93 begins boarding at gate 17A. A photo shows a long gray and blue airliner. It is the United Airlines Boeing 757-200 with tail number N591-UA. It sits on the tarmac at Newark International Airport. 7.59 a.m. American Airlines Flight 11 takes off from Boston, Massachusetts, for Los Angeles, California, with 92 people aboard. Pictured here is an aerial view of the five-sided Pentagon in Arlington, Virginia, near Washington, D.C. The Washington Monument stands in the distance at right like a tall, white exclamation point. 8.14 a.m. United Airlines Flight 175 takes off from Boston for Los Angeles, with 65 people aboard. Pictured below is the dome of the United States Capitol Building, and to the left and right are the legislative chambers of the U.S. Congress in Washington, D.C. Behind the Capitol is the U.S. Supreme Court Building and the Library of Congress. 8.16 a.m. Classes begin at Shanksville Stony Creek School for approximately 490 children in kindergarten through grade 12. The color photo here depicts a yellow school bus at a stairway leading to the school in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. 8.20 a.m. American Airlines Flight 77 leaves Washington, D.C. for Los Angeles with 64 people aboard. 8.42 a.m., flight 93 takes off with 44 people aboard after a delay of about 25 minutes due to heavy air traffic at Newark. Below this text is a black image of the United States covered with green dots. It is a map of approximately 4,500 commercial aircraft and general aviation in flight over the United States about 9.40 a.m. September 11th. 2001. A display case is inset at the center of the wall. Within the display case are a range of items. From left, a sign, floor 107, a ring of keys, a stack of business cards in a holder, signage, office of the Undersecretary of Defense, an Army captain's cap, a patch in the shape of the Pentagon and displaying an eagle, as part of a seal of the armed forces, an invitation to the Congressional Texas-style barbecue, a pass to the United States Senate chamber, and a wood gavel. Below the inset case is a case on the shelf. It contains a copy of the Wall Street Journal, dated Tuesday, September 11th, 2001, a sheet labeled Current News, Early Bird, September 11th. 2001 and a page of the congressional record dated September 10th 2001 text reads business as usual on the morning of September 11th thousands begin their workday by reading the Tuesday edition of the Wall Street Journal at the more than 400 firms in the World Trade Center banking and financial businesses insurance legal Foreign trade and international relations companies, along with retail shops, occupy the 110 stories of each of the Twin Towers. Near the top of the North Tower, on the 107th floor, customers in the renowned Windows on the World restaurant order breakfast while they enjoy the view. Morning Briefing Uniformed personnel of all ranks and branches of the Armed Services as well as civilian Department of Defense employees report to work in the Pentagon. Senior officials of the Defense Department have offices in the Pentagon where military and civilian staffs carry out administrative and intelligence functions necessary for the nation's security. As personnel arrive at their desks, they scan the Pentagon's early bird or overnight developments. Banks, medical and dental clinics, and shops within the Pentagon open. Call to order. At the U.S. Capitol, members of Congress review the congressional record in preparation for the legislative day. A tap of the House gavel calls the representatives to order at 9 a.m., while the Senate is scheduled to convene at 10 a.m. Visitors to the Capitol including a delegation from the British Parliament, arrive for a tour of one of the most recognizable buildings in the world. Members of Congress and their families are invited to attend a barbecue on the White House lawn later that day. The next section of our tour is the second side of Exhibit 1. 3. Exhibit 1B You are now at the second side of Exhibit 1. It presents a review of the 9-11 attacks. At the left, a tall panel is labeled, America Attacked. Text reads, America Attacked. Throughout the summer of 2001, the United States intelligence community reports a dramatic increase in threats by terrorist groups. Many warnings point to Al-Qaeda, a terrorist network based in Afghanistan and their plans to attack overseas targets and unspecified U.S. interests. Though desperate to prevent attacks, intelligence agencies do not have specifics about a date, method, or target. By mid-morning on September 11th, al-Qaeda brings international terrorism to United States soil. Terrorists hijack four airplanes to attack symbols of American power. In less than two hours' time, nearly 3,000 people are killed. Extending to the right is the second side of the first rectangular display. The background is a view of the Statue of Liberty, standing at left in the foreground. In the back is a portion of the New York skyline. The entire scene is surrounded by a yellow haze. A caption reads, Days after the attack, Smoke from the destruction of the World Trade Center towers still drifts behind the Statue of Liberty in the New York Harbor and shrouds the skyline of lower Manhattan. Along the top of the display are the words, A second plane hit the second tower. America is under attack. White House Chief of Staff Andrew Card to President George W. Bush, 905 a.m., September 11, 2001. A television monitor playing news reports from September 11, 2001, is located at the center of the skyline background. The following two quotes from the media are on either side of the monitor. This just in, you are looking at, obviously, a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center, and we have unconfirmed reports this morning that a plane has crashed into one of the towers. CNN correspondent Carol Lynn 8:50 a.m. I don't want to alarm anybody right now, but apparently there it it felt just a few minutes ago like there was an explosion of some kind here at the Pentagon. NBC News correspondent Jim Mickelski, Pentagon E-ring, 9:39 a.m. Below the monitor, at left, is an inset case with artifacts, including items pulled from the rubble of the World Trade Center and the ashes of the attack on the Pentagon. To the left of the case, text reads, Al-Qaeda's targets. Terrorists begin discussing the plane's operation as early as 1999. An early version of the plan calls for training pilots to hijack and crash commercial airliners into nine buildings on both coasts of the United States. The first operatives recruited for the plot obtain U.S. visas in 1999, and by 2000, the men that will fly the hijacked planes are enrolled in U.S. flight schools. Although numerous targets are discussed, the al-Qaeda plan eventually centers on buildings which represent the power of the U.S. economy, military, and government, the World Trade Center, the Pentagon, and the White House, or more likely, the U.S. Capitol. Within the case are some of the 1.8 million tons of debris from the collapsed World Trade Center a piece of jagged steel, mangled tableware from the Windows on the World restaurant, and a battered computer disk drive excavated more than five years after the attack. From the Pentagon, a segment of a U.S. Navy officer's family photograph found just one floor above where Flight 77 crashes, and a charred U.S. Army challenge coin and ribbon, a fragment of limestone, from the building. At the far right, from the desk of the architect of the Capitol, is a replica of the bronze figure from atop the dome of the U.S. Capitol, Freedom. It is a classical female figure with long flowing hair, wearing a helmet with a crest composed of an eagle's head and feathers, encircled by nine stars. Draped on her body is a flowing, toga-like robe. To the right is text organized in a timeline. 8.46 a.m. Five hijackers fly Flight 11 into the World Trade Center's North Tower. 9.03 a.m. Five hijackers fly Flight 175 into the South Tower. 9.37 a.m. Five hijackers fly Flight 77 into the West facade of the Pentagon. 9.45 a.m. Evacuation begins at the White House and U.S. Capitol. Below the text are several photos, from left to right. Flight 175 about to crash into the South Tower. Behind it is the North Tower, aflame and spewing thick black smoke. The west facade of the Pentagon, its rubble burning. And people running from the U.S. Capitol. To the right, text reads... Loss of life, the death toll from the plane's impact and the collapse of the towers is staggering. Flight 11 hits floors 93 through 99 of the World Trade Center's North Tower, killing all on board and 1,470 people in and around the building. Flight 175 crashes into floors 77 through 85 of the South Tower, killing everyone on board and 695 people in and around the building. Additionally, 441 first responders are killed at the World Trade Center site. As Flight 77 hits the west facade of the Pentagon, the impact kills all on board and 125 people in the building. It is not known how many people lose their lives after September 11th, as a result of exposure to toxins at ground zero. A shelf extends forward from the display, about 12 inches, and at about 2 feet from the bottom of the display. At left, two paragraphs of text discuss Al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden. Al-Qaeda Al-Qaeda is formed in or around 1989 by a group of militant Islamists, Dedicated to opposing non Islamic governments with force and violence. By the 1990s, Al Qaeda is supporting terrorists around the world. Between 1996 and 2001, 10,000 to 20,000 fighters go through Al Qaeda supported training camps. Their network of terror stretches from Afghanistan to Southeast Asia to the United States using the internet. television to recruit followers and spread its message osama bin laden is al-qaeda's founder spokesman and main financial supporter al-qaeda provides other terrorist groups around the world with funds training and weapons but bin laden wants his organization to attack the head of the snake and hit the united states directly in 1998 Al-Qaeda operatives simultaneously set off bombs at two U.S. embassies in East Africa and in 2000 attacked the Navy destroyer USS Cole at anchor in Yemen. Osama bin Laden Al-Qaeda founder Osama bin Laden is born into a wealthy Saudi family in 1957 and even as a youth embraces a militant version of Islam. In 1980, he joins other disaffected Muslims to wage Holy War, or Jihad, in Afghanistan to expel Soviet-occupying forces. After the Soviet withdrawal, bin Laden and others form al-Qaeda as a base for future jihad, intent on attacking U.S. interests. The U.S. is considered an enemy because it is not governed according to al-Qaeda's extremist interpretation of Islam and supports infidel governments in Saudi Arabia, Egypt, and Israel. Al-Qaeda opposes U.S. involvement in the 1991 Gulf War and the continuing military presence in the Arabian Peninsula. Bin Laden believes the U.S. is behind the oppression of Muslims around the world through its political influence, military power, materialism, and traditions of democracy and equality. In 1998, he proclaims, To kill the Americans and their allies, civilian and military, is an individual duty for every Muslim who can do it. Moving to the right, another timeline traces the development of Osama bin Laden's planning. 1980, Osama bin Laden travels to Afghanistan to help recruit fighters and finance the struggle against Soviet occupation. 1989. In Afghanistan and Pakistan, Osama bin Laden and other militant Islamists found al-Qaeda, which means the base. 1991. The leadership of al-Qaeda, including bin Laden, moves to the Sudan Sets up a network of businesses as well as training camps for terrorists and remains there for five years before returning to Afghanistan. February 26, 1993. Terrorists with ties to al-Qaeda detonate a truck bomb in a parking garage under the World Trade Center, killing six people and injuring more than 1,000. August 1996. From his camp in Afghanistan, Osama bin Laden issues a fatwa, a ruling by an Islamic leader entitled, Declaration of Jihad Against the Americans Occupying the Land of the Two Holy Mosques, expel the heretics from the Arabian Peninsula. The two holy mosques are in the cities of Mecca and Medina in Saudi Arabia. August 1998. Al-Qaeda-trained terrorists detonate bombs at the American embassies in Nairobi, Kenya and Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, on August 7th, the 8th anniversary of the arrival of U.S. troops in Saudi Arabia. The attacks kill 224 people and injure about 5,000. On August 29th, the U.S. Navy launches an unsuccessful cruise missile attack against Osama bin Laden. Early 1999, Osama bin Laden and operational leader Khalid Sheikh Mohammed review plans for the 9-11 attacks. Bin Laden chooses the first four hijackers from among his followers in Afghanistan. June 1999, FBI places Osama bin Laden on its 10 most wanted fugitives list for his role in the 1998 embassy bombings and other terrorist activities. Late 1999. Radical militant Muslims living in Hamburg, Germany, arrive for training at an al-Qaeda camp in Afghanistan and are chosen for the 9-11 plot. They return to Germany and begin researching flight schools. Summer 2000. Terrorists travel from Germany to the United States and enroll in flight schools in Florida. October 12, 2000, al-Qaeda suicide bombers attacked the Navy destroyer USS Cole in Aden, Yemen, killing 17 U.S. sailors and injuring 39. Late 2000, at al-Qaeda training camps in Afghanistan, hijackers undergo training in how to disarm air marshals, handle explosives, use knives, and storm an airplane's cockpit. December 2000, another al-Qaeda-trained terrorists, already possessing a commercial pilot's license, arrives in the United States and enrolls in pilot and jet simulator training in Arizona. April 2001, more al-Qaeda-sponsored terrorists begin arriving in the United States to fill out the four terrorist teams. The 19 terrorists who take part in the September 11th attacks are from Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, Lebanon, and Egypt. May to September 2001 The hijackers prepare for their operation by taking additional flight training, fitness training, purchasing knives, and testing domestic security practices by boarding commercial flights with concealed weapons. Hijacker pilots take cross-country surveillance flights. July 2001, the leader of the hijacker teams meets with another Al-Qaeda operative in Spain to discuss the final plans and potential targets for the September 11th attacks. August 4, 2001, Jose Melendez Perez, a U.S. Customs and Border Patrol agent, refuses to allow a Saudi citizen into the United States at Orlando International Airport in Florida. The man turned away may have been a fifth hijacker who planned to board Flight 93. September 10, 2001. Hijack teams gather near Boston, in Herndon, Virginia, near Dulles Airport, and in Newark, New Jersey. September 11, 2001. The four hijacked teams, composed of 19 terrorists in all, board four commercial airliners and launch their attack on the United States. This has bin Laden all over it. George Tenet, director, Central Intelligence Agency, when told that a plane has flown into the World Trade Center. At the far right are models of the World Trade Center, the Pentagon, and the United States Capitol, each labeled in Braille. Feel free to examine the models here with your hands. Text reads, The World Trade Center covers approximately 16 acres in a superblock in Lower Manhattan. The seven buildings in the complex have over 13 million square feet of office space. At the center of the complex are the Twin Towers, completed in 1971, each rising 110 stories and clad in aluminum alloy for a sleek, modern look. The Pentagon is a fortress-like concrete building shaped like a pentagon. It has five floors above ground with five concentric rings on each floor. The Pentagon ranks among the largest office buildings in the world. The Capitol is a striking white, neoclassical building located at the east end of the National Mall in Washington, D.C. It has four wings which house the meeting chambers of the Senate and the House of Representatives. The Capitol is crowned with a massive cast-iron dome 100 feet in diameter. Atop the dome is the 19-foot-tall bronze Statue of Freedom. The next section of our tour is the first side of Exhibit 2. 4. Exhibit 2A. You are now at the first side of Exhibit 2. This display presents a continuation of the review of the 9-11 attacks, featuring in the background a map with green lights representing the 4,500 commercial and general aviation aircraft in flight over the United States, about 9.40 a.m., September 11, 2001, and a cross-section and raised-line illustration of the Flight 93 airplane. At the left, a tall panel is labeled Threat in the Air. Text reads, Threat in the Air. When American Airlines Flight 11 strikes the North Tower of the World Trade Center, many believe it is a tragic accident. Minutes later, United Airlines Flight 175 hits the second World Trade Center tower, and many now realize these acts are deliberate. Amid the confusion of these unfolding events, American Airlines Flight 77 strikes the Pentagon. It is clear the attack is not confined to New York City. Any plane in the air is a threat. On the glass in front of the U.S. map is a timeline of the effects in the aftermath of the attacks. 9.21 a.m. All bridges and tunnels into Manhattan are closed. 9.25 a.m. The Federal Aviation Administration, FAA, orders a nationwide ground stop which prevents all aircraft from taking off in the United States. 9.42 a.m. Unsure of the number of possible hijackings, the FAA orders all aircraft over the United States, about 4,500 planes, to land at the nearest airport. 9.45 a.m., CNN broadcasts an erroneous report of a fire on the National Mall. 9.59 a.m., the South Tower at the World Trade Center collapses. 10.10 a.m. After U.S. airspace is closed, international flights bound for the United States are diverted to airports across Canada or turned back to their origination point. 10.23 a.m. The Associated Press erroneously reports that a car bomb has exploded outside the State Department in Washington, D.C. 10.28 a.m. The North Tower at the World Trade Center collapses. Interspersed with the elements of the timeline are quotations from media during the same time frame. We don't know yet whether this was an accident, some sort of planned incident. We are trying to get some information about exactly what happened. We don't know. Fox News, Washington, D.C., 8.53 a.m. If you look at the second building, there are two. Both twin towers now are on fire. Texas Cable News, Austin, Texas, 9.04 a.m. The smoke that you see on the left-hand side of your screen is right here in the Washington area at the Pentagon. CBS News correspondent Andrea Roan, Washington, D.C., 9.41 a.m. The entire building has just collapsed. It folded down on itself, and it's not there anymore. ABC News correspondent Don Dollar reporting after the collapse of the second tower 9:59 a.m. Almost all eyes are looking skyward. Police are training binoculars upward apparently watching for more aircraft. People are just streaming out of nearby office buildings. It is very much a scene verging on chaos. CBS Radio News correspondent Peter Mayer, outside the White House. This is moments ago of the second plane coming in, and this is now in slow motion. Oh, this is terrifying. Awful. ABC News correspondent Charles Gibson. As we come on air, we have serious news of a major possible air crash in the United States. A plane appears to have crashed into one of New York's tallest buildings, the World Trade Center, BBC World, London. The working theory here is that this is the work of terrorists. CBS News correspondent Jim Stewart. A ledge or shelf extends along the width of the display, jutting out about 12 inches forward and at about 2 feet from the bottom of the display. At left, in an inset case, are several ragged items, a United Mileage Plus card in the name of Toshiya Kuge, Ms. Hilda Marson's itinerary, and a parking entrance ticket from Newark Airport. A caption notes, Boarding at Gate 17A, Toshiya Kuge is heading home to Japan, and Hilda Marson is traveling to her daughter's house in California. Todd Beamer Parks his car in the Newark Airport parking lot and pockets the ticket. Just to the right, text explains Flight 93. Flight 93, a Boeing 757 200, is configured to seat 182 passengers. However, the flight has only 33 passengers, seven crew members, and four hijackers aboard. In 2001, this light load is not unusual. In planning the attacks, the hijackers chose flights that typically have few passengers on board, assuming they will encounter less resistance during the takeover of the planes. They also choose non-stop cross-country flights so the planes will be carrying as much fuel as possible when they strike their targets. The model and key at the right show the seating assignments of the crew and the ticketed seats of the passengers and hijackers and vacant seats, primarily toward the rear of the aircraft. Feel free to use your hands to trace the raised line outline of the 154-foot long plane to the left and area seating diagram to the right. In the seating diagram, seats occupied by passengers, crew members, and hijackers are identified with raised numbers and braille. To the right is a listing of the flight crew, first-class passengers, and coach passengers. Flight Crew 1. Captain Jason M. Dahl, Littleton, Colorado. 2. First Officer Leroy Homer, Marlton, New Jersey. 3. Deborah Jacobs Welsh, Flight Attendant, New York City, New York, assigned to first class. Lorraine G. Bay, flight attendant, East Windsor, New Jersey, assigned to coach. Five, Wanda Anita Green, flight attendant, Oakland, California, Linden, New Jersey, assigned to first class. Six, Sandy Wall Bradshaw, flight attendant, Greensboro, North Carolina, assigned to coach. 7. C.C. Ross Lyles, Flight Attendant, Fort Pierce, Florida, Assigned to Coach. First Class Passengers 1. B. Ziad Jarrah, Lebanon 2. A. Linda Gronlund, Greenwood Lake, New York 2. B. Joseph DeLuca, Sakasana, New Jersey 2. D. Edward Porter Felt, Matawan, New Jersey, 3C, Ahmed Al-Nami, Saudi Arabia, 3D, Saeed Al-Ghamdi, Saudi Arabia, 4B, Thomas E. Burnett, Jr., Bloomington, Minnesota, 4D, Mark Bingham, San Francisco, California, 5B, Mark David Rothenberg, Scotch Plains, New Jersey, 6B, Ahmed Al-Haznawi, Saudi Arabia. Coach Passengers. 10A, Nicole Carroll Miller, San Jose, California. 10D, Todd M. Beamer, Cranberry, New Jersey. 10F, Waleska Martinez, Jersey City, New Jersey. 11A, Jeremy Logan Glick, Hewitt, New Jersey. 11D. Lauren Catuzzi Grancolas, San Rafael, California. 11F. Honor Elizabeth Wainio, Baltimore, Maryland. 12B.C. Marion R. Britton, Brooklyn, New York. 12D. Georgine Rose Corrigan, Honolulu, Hawaii. 12F. Louis J. Nackie II, New Hope, Pennsylvania. 13A. Colleen L. Fraser, Elizabeth, New Jersey. 14A. Donald Arthur Peterson, Spring Lake, New Jersey. 14C. Jean Hoadley Peterson, Spring Lake, New Jersey. 15C. Patrick Joseph Driscoll, Manalapan, New Jersey. 15D, William Joseph Cashman, West New York, New Jersey. 16D, Donald Freeman Green, Greenwich, Connecticut. 17A, Christine Ann Snyder, Kalua, Hawaii. 17C, Hilda Marson, Mount Olive, New Jersey. 17D, Christian Adams, Bibelsheim, Rhineland-Falz, Germany. 17F, Alan Anthony Bevan, Oakland, California. 18A, Toshia Kuge, Osaka, Japan. 18F, John Talignani, Staten Island, New York. 19A, Richard J. Guadagno, Eureka, California, Trenton, New Jersey. 19B, Jane C. Folger, Bayonne, New Jersey. 19C, Patricia Cushing, Bayonne, New Jersey. 20C, Andrew Sonny Garcia, Portola Valley, California. 20F, Deora Francis Bodley, San Diego, California. 21C, Kristen Osterholm, White Gould, New York City, New York. The next section of our tour is the second side of Exhibit 2. 5. Exhibit 2B You are now at the second side of Exhibit 2. This side provides a timeline of events on board Flight 93. At the left, a tall panel is labeled Flight 93 Hijacked. Text reads, Flight 93 Hijacked Armed with knives, the terrorists break into the cockpit, attack the pilots, and gain control of the aircraft. They kill or injure several passengers and crew members. A routine flight becomes a mid-air struggle for life or death. The terrorists claim to have a bomb and force the remaining people to the back of the plane. Flight 93, now piloted by a terrorist, changes course and heads southeast toward Washington, D.C., Over the next 35 minutes, the passengers and crew manage to place calls to their loved ones and authorities. After learning that their aircraft is part of a larger attack on the country, they quickly share information and decide to act. The display to the right is a large map indicating the geographic area covered by Flight 93, complete with the green lights noting other aircraft. Along the top of the display are the words, Beware any cockpit intrusion. United Airlines dispatcher Ed Ballinger, message sent to Flight 93, received at 9.24 a.m. To the left, a panel tells of the common strategy. The protocol in place on September 11th, based on previous experience with hijackings, leads the aviation industry and the FBI to recommend that airline crews refrain from attempts to overpower or negotiate with hijackers. Instead, crews are trained to delay and cooperate in hopes of safely landing the plane. The strategy operates on the assumption that hijackers will issue demands for ransom, asylum, or release of prisoners. The common strategy offers little direction for a suicide hijacking. The Flight 93 flight path extends in almost a straight line from Newark, New Jersey to just south of Cleveland, Ohio. It then makes a U-turn and heads southeast, where it passes to the south of Pittsburgh, curves sharply, then ends at Shanksville, Pennsylvania. A dotted line traces a path from there to Washington, D.C. Numbers along the path are keyed to explanations below. Text reports that You can trace the path of Flight 93 after takeoff from Newark. For the first 45 minutes, the flight path is a nearly straight, smooth, westward line. Shortly after the hijacking begins, the plane makes a sharp U-turn near Cleveland, Ohio and begins to fly back in a southeasterly direction. The flight path ends where the plane crashes near Shanksville, Pennsylvania. A touchable version of this map can be located at the far left of the angled ledge below the large map. A timeline provides a chronological record of the events on the plane. 8.42 a.m., Flight 93, Takeoff. 8.56 a.m. Flight 11 strikes North Tower of WTC. 9.03 a.m. Flight 175 strikes South Tower of WTC. 9.28 a.m. Flight 93 terrorists take over. 9.37. Flight 77 strikes the Pentagon. 9.57 a.m. Flight 93 struggle with terrorists begins. 10.03 a.m., Flight 93 crash. At 9.42 a.m., the Federal Aviation Administration ordered all aircraft over the United States to land at the nearest airport. As the minutes ticked by, fewer and fewer planes represented by the green dots on the map remained in the air over the United States. To the right is a television monitor with an animation of the flight. Black boxes reveal flight path. The National Transportation Safety Board, NTSB, creates this animation from the data recorded by Flight 93's black boxes, which are recovered at the crash site. The instruments at the right of the monitor show, top to bottom, the plane's airspeed in knots altitude above sea level, position relative to the horizon, and heading. The video stops seconds before the plane's impact. Further to the right is an illustration of the interior of the aircraft. A title and accompanying text reads, A Desperate Decision. 9.30 a.m. Calls from Flight 93. From the back of the plane, at least 13 passengers and crew members make telephone calls from airphones located on center seat backs in each row or from personal cell phones. These calls are diagrammed on the illustration of the plane to the right and reveal where those people are sitting at specific moments after the terrorist takeover of the plane. Under terrifying circumstances, the men and women aboard Flight 93 place at least 37 calls. Many of the calls are dropped or interrupted. However, flight attendants are able to reach United Airlines to report the hijacking. Together, the calls provide a glimpse of the last minutes of the passengers and crew. The calls are detailed as follows. Three calls, rows 24, 25, Seats A, B, C, Thomas E. Burnett, Jr. One call, Row 32, Seats A, B, C, C.C. Ross Lyles. Three calls, Row 33, Seats A, B, C, Marion R. Britton, Honor Elizabeth Wainio, Unidentified Flight Attendant. Four calls, Row 34, Seats A, B, C, Waleska Martinez, unidentified flight attendant. One call, cell phone, rear lavatory, Edward Porter Felt. Eight calls, row 23, seats DEF, Lauren Catuzzi Grancolos. Four calls, row 25, seats DEF, Mark Bingham. Four calls, row 26, seats DEF, Joseph DeLuca, Linda Gronlund. One call, row 27, seats DEF, Jeremy Logan Glick. Four calls, row 32, seats DEF, Todd M. Beamer. Three calls, row 33, seats DEF, Sandy Waugh Bradshaw. One call, cell phone. Unknown location, C.C. Ross Lyles. Several cell phone calls from passengers are reported by family members, but not documented by the FBI. An additional timeline illustrates the passengers' plan to fight back. A plan to fight back. 9.30 a.m. Passenger Tom Burnett learns from his wife that Two planes have crashed into the World Trade Center. 9:37 a.m. During a 20-minute airphone call, passenger Jeremy Glick tells his wife that the passengers and crew are voting on whether to storm the cockpit. 9:44 a.m. Passenger Tom Burnett tells his wife that a group of us are getting ready to do something. 9:50 a.m. During a 7-minute call, flight attendant Sandy Bradshaw tells her husband that the passengers are discussing how to overpower the hijackers, including preparing hot water to throw on them. 9:55 a.m. Speaking with an airphone operator, passenger Todd Beamer asks her to pray with him. Then the operator hears him say, "Are you guys ready? Okay, let's roll." a.m. In a call to her stepmother, passenger Honor Elizabeth Wainio tells her that the passengers and crew are getting ready to break into the cockpit, and adds, I have to go. I love you. Goodbye. 9.58 a.m. Passenger Edward Felt places one of the final calls, dialing 911 on his cell phone, and connecting with a dispatcher in Westmoreland County, Pennsylvania. He is able to state his name, the flight number, and report the hijacking before the call is dropped. About two feet up from the bottom is an angled ledge that stretches the length of the panel. Text along the ledge is keyed to numbers along the flight path illustrated above. 1. 8.42 a.m. United Airlines Flight 93 takes off for San Francisco, about 25 minutes late. 2. 9.24 a.m. Flight 93 receives a message from a United Airlines dispatcher. Beware any cockpit intrusion. Two aircraft in New York hit Trade Center builds. At 9.26 a.m., Captain Dahl responds. Ed. Confirm latest message, please. Jason. 3. 9.28 a.m. The plane suddenly drops 685 feet in altitude. Air traffic controllers at Cleveland Center hear a struggle as Flight 93 is hijacked. They hear the words, Mayday, hey, get out of here, and 32 seconds later, get out of here, get out of here. 4. 9.30 a.m. Flight 93 passengers and crew begin making phone calls, learn about the attacks on the World Trade Center, and discuss their options. 5, 9.32 AM. A hijacker attempts to make an announcement to passengers on the plane's intercom, but instead transmits to air traffic control in Cleveland. Ladies and gentlemen, here, the captain. Please sit down, keep remaining sitting. We have a bomb on board, so sit. Cleveland Center notifies the Federal Aviation Administration, FAA Command Center at Herndon, Virginia, of the hijacking. 6, 9.34 a.m. Flight 93 begins an unauthorized climb, then turns to the southeast. Herndon Command Center relays a report on Flight 93, to FAA headquarters. 7, 9.39 a.m. A hijacker makes another broadcasted announcement. Um, this is the captain. Would like you all to remain seated. There is a bomb aboard, and we go back to the airport, and to have our demands unintelligible. Please remain quiet. 8, 9.41 a.m. Hijackers turn off Flight 93's transponder, the device which sends out a signal identifying the plane's position and altitude. Cleveland tracks the plane on radar and matches the readings with visual sightings by other aircraft. 9. 9.46 a.m. Herndon Command Center informs FAA headquarters that Flight 93 is tracking toward Washington, D.C., and is 29 minutes from the city. 10. 9.55 a.m. The hijacker pilot enters the frequency for Reagan National Airport into the receiver in order to aid him in flying the aircraft to Washington, D.C. 11. About 9.57 a.m., passengers and crew begin their assault on the terrorists in an attempt to reach the cockpit. 12. 9.58 9.58 a.m. Hijackers begin to violently rock the plane from side to side to throw the passengers and crew off balance. 13.10 a.m. A hijacker's voice in the cockpit says in Arabic, Is that it? Shall we finish it off? Another answers, No, not yet. When they all come, we finish it off. Fourteen. a.m. Flight 93 crashes in Stony Creek Township, Somerset County, Pennsylvania, about 20 minutes flying time from Washington, D.C. All aboard are killed. Further to the right, additional text tells us of the military response. On September 11th, America's air defense is in the hands of the North American Aerospace Defense Command, NORAD, with seven alert sites, each with two fighter aircraft on alert. The agency's focus is on protecting the continent from external attacks. The Federal Aviation Administration, FAA, and NORAD have protocols for responding to a hijacking. With clearance... NORAD can scramble planes to identify a rogue aircraft and escort it to the ground where, hopefully, the situation would be resolved with no loss of life. The situation that the FAA and the military face on September 11th, multiple hijackings of domestic flights by terrorist pilots planning to use the planes as weapons does not fit the existing protocol. Systems for information sharing and decision-making are strained. Personnel struggle to adapt to what one NORAD controller calls a new type of war. Minutes after the first hijacking on September 11th, the FAA contacts the U.S. military. NORAD scrambles two fighter jets from a base in Massachusetts, but with only nine minutes' advance warning before Flight 11 strikes the World Trade Center, There is no opportunity to take action. NORAD learns of a second hijacked plane, Flight 175, at the very moment when the aircraft is striking the World Trade Center. NORAD scrambles two fighter jets from a base in Virginia in response to an erroneous report from the FAA that one of the flights that actually hit the towers is still airborne and heading for Washington, D.C. The jets are directed eastward, over the Atlantic Ocean. The military learns that an unidentified aircraft is heading toward Washington, D.C. from the west one minute before Flight 77 crashes into the Pentagon. After Flight 77 impacts the Pentagon, the military establishes a combat air patrol over the nation's capital. Initially, the two armed fighter jets circling the city do not have authorization to fire, only to ID, type, and tail non-responding aircraft. The staff of the National Commission on Terrorists' Attacks upon the United States, known as the 9-11 Commission, uses logs, recordings, radar data, and interviews to construct this timeline of events relating to military awareness of the fourth hijacked aircraft, Flight 93. 9.32 a.m., the FAA's Cleveland Center notifies the command center at herndon that flight 93 may be hijacked 936 a.m. cleveland center asks herndon command center if anyone has requested military assistance to intercept the hijacked plane and is told that this decision has to come from higher up the chain of command 1003 a.m. flight 93 crashes near Shanksville, Pennsylvania. Approximately 20 minutes flying time from Washington, D.C. 10.07 a.m., Cleveland Center, unaware that the plane has crashed, notifies the military that Flight 93 has been hijacked and provides its last known location. 10.10 a.m., fighters from Langley Air Force Base in Virginia establish a combat air patrol over Washington, D.C. 10.15 a.m. The FAA informs the military that Flight 93 has crashed. 10.31 a.m. The military receives its first official rules of engagement for its fighters, stating that the Vice President has authorized the military to shoot down aircraft that do not respond to its direction. The military commander waits several minutes before passing on the order because he is uncertain of its ramifications. The next section of our tour is the first side of Exhibit 3. 6. Exhibit 3A You are now at the first side of Exhibit 3. Here the display presents a detailed account of the actions that Flight 93's passengers and crew took once the flight was hijacked. At left, text on a tall panel reads, FIGHTING BACK. The passengers and crew of Flight 93 vote to charge the cockpit. Ending their calls to loved ones, they rush forward. The plane's black boxes record erratic flight and a sustained struggle in the cockpit. The cockpit voice recorder captures the voices of both native English and native Arabic speakers, as well as screams, shouts, breaking glass, alarms, and sounds of fighting. In the midst of the counterattack, Flight 93 crashes in a field near Shanksville, Pennsylvania, less than 20 minutes from al-Qaeda's intended target, the nation's capital. Below this text is a narrow, horizontal inset behind plexiglass. It contains an answering machine with a telephone handset. A caption notes, A missed call. Passenger Lauren Grancolis leaves a message for her husband, Jack, on this answering machine during the hijacking of Flight 93. To the right, the display is dominated by a circular frame around an image of the interior of an aircraft looking from the rear toward the cockpit area. At the top of the display, In the cockpit! If we don't, we'll die! Native English-speaking male voice shouting captured by the cockpit voice recorder at 10 a.m. and 25 seconds. Below, text reads, This illustration provides the view from the rear of the plane where passengers and crew are making calls, forced to spend their final moments. Beyond the curtain, at the front of the plane, is the cockpit where the terrorist pilot is in control of the plane. The aisle is 20 inches wide. The total distance from the back of the plane to the cockpit is about 100 feet. In the foreground are replicas of the rear of the seats aboard Flight 93, a Boeing 757-200. On the simulated airplane seats are handsets that you can lift to access recordings of several of the calls placed by passengers and crew on Flight 93. Pads are set on the floor in front of the seats. At left are two handsets below the text, Recorded calls. Only a few of the calls placed by passengers and crew on Flight 93 are recorded. You can listen to recorded calls made from the aircraft that day. Please be advised that these recordings include content of a sensitive nature. Parental guidance is recommended. Moving to the right, the next seat display includes a tactile replica of an airphone set within the seat back, it is similar to the ones used on flight 93 text reads last connections in 2001 many aircraft are equipped with seatback airphones passengers and crew use these phones to reach their loved ones and the authorities some calls are very brief some lines stay open for almost 30 minutes a few calls are recorded and others are later recounted by loved ones Continuing to the right are two additional seatbacks with two handsets on each. Between these two displays is a plexiglass case that extends from the seatback about four inches. It contains a photograph of an airphone recovered at the Flight 93 crash site. Below it is a crumpled fragment of an airphone recovered at the crash site. The aircraft interior display is surrounded on the left and right by a timeline of the sounds captured from Flight 93. 9.58 and 55 seconds a.m. The cockpit voice recorder captures the voice of a native English-speaking male. In the cockpit, in the cockpit. 9.59 a.m. Hijacker pilot rolls the plane sharply to the left and right for about two minutes while the assault by the passengers and crew continues. 9.59 a.m. The cockpit voice recorder captures sounds of loud thumps, crashes, shouts, and breaking glasses and plates. A native English-speaking male voice or voices says, stop him and let's get them. 10 a.m. Hijacker pilot pitches the nose of the plane up and down to disrupt the assault, then stabilizes the plane. 10.01 a.m. The cockpit voice recorder captures the hijacker's decision, spoken in Arabic, to crash the plane. Is that it? I mean, shall we put it down? Yes, put it in it and pull it down. 10.03 and 7 seconds a.m. The cockpit voice recorder captures the sounds of a native English-speaking man shouting loudly, No! 10.03 and 11 seconds a.m. Flight 93 crashes, with the hijackers still at the controls about 20 minutes flying time from Washington, D.C. The next section of our tour is the second side of Exhibit 3. 7. Exhibit 3B. You are at the second side of Exhibit 3. Here the display presents a description of the immediate aftermath of the Flight 93 crash. At left is a tall panel with the following text Aircraft down. Flight 93 hits the ground traveling at 563 miles per hour and carrying more than 5,000 gallons of jet fuel, exploding on impact and throwing debris into the nearby Hemlock Grove. There are no survivors. Eyewitnesses report a fiery crash in the Pennsylvania countryside. A 911 dispatcher radios fire and emergency medical personnel. Large aircraft down in the area of Lambertsville Road. Arriving within minutes of the crash, first responders find a smoking crater, burning trees, and the ground littered with fragments of the plane. Authorities quickly realize the crash of Flight 93 is part of the larger attack on the nation. A variety of color photographs and texts populate this display, headed by a quotation. There was an airplane that just crashed near Shanksville, Oh, my. It's on fire. It's unbelievable. 911 caller, Village of Lambertsville. A man wears a white fire helmet and red suspenders over a gray T-shirt. First responders, Assistant Fire Chief Rick King of the Shanksville Volunteer Fire Company, living three miles from the crash, is one of the first people on the scene. He and firefighters from seven other volunteer companies travel local and mining roads to reach the site. Emergency medical personnel also rush to the scene. As firefighters, we're trained to put out fires and save lives. But when we got there, there was really nothing left. And we realized there was no one to save. Assistant Chief Rick King, Shanksville Volunteer Fire Company. At the top of the display, a photo depicts a dark gray cloud hovering in a bright blue sky above farmland. A bright red barn is set in the lower right of the image. When I opened the door, I could see the smoke up over the hill. It was a really crystal blue sky. There was a huge plume of smoke, but it was just silence out there. Val McClatchy, nearby resident who photographed Smoke Cloud, from her front porch. Pennsylvania Governor Tom Ridge in jeans and an open collar shirt steps through grassland followed by a state trooper. A helicopter is in the background. Officials, Pennsylvania Governor Tom Ridge arrives at the crash site at about 6 p.m. on September 11th. Officials offer the resources of federal, state, and local governments to aid in the investigation and recovery effort. A photo of a state trooper and the text, Pennsylvania State Police. Pennsylvania State Police arrive within minutes after the crash and immediately begin to direct people away from the crater and the surrounding area to preserve the crash site as a crime scene. It was obvious that there weren't any survivors, but you could walk around and see small pieces of the plane It was devastating, that big hole that was in the ground and all the smoke billowing up from it. Trooper Joseph Grove, Pennsylvania State Police. A photograph of thousands attending a candlelight memorial service at the Somerset County Courthouse on September 14th. A large American flag is draped over the columned facade of the courthouse. Community! The people of Somerset County and surrounding areas bring food and supplies to the Shanksville Fire Station. Restaurant owners donate food for workers at the site. Teachers and students made signs and banners of support. Also pictured is an FBI agent, displaying photos of evidence. FBI, agents from the Federal Bureau of Investigation, FBI, arrive at the site by late morning. At a press briefing on September 12th, Assistant Special Agent in Charge Roland Corvington holds up a photo of two key pieces of evidence they hope to recover—the cockpit voice recorder and flight data recorder, better known as the black boxes. The FBI ultimately works with personnel from more than 70 other agencies. The search will be painstaking. The value of the black box and the information therein cannot be overstated. Assistant Special Agent in Charge Roland Corvington, Pittsburgh Division, FBI, press briefing at Flight 93 crash site, September 12, 2001. In the center of the display is a large photograph of a black and smoking V-shaped gash in the ground at the crash site what appears to be a charred smoldering hole in the ground is truly and really a monument to heroism governor tom ridge somerset county courthouse memorial service september 14th 2001 to the right and at the top of the display is a photo of a minister with his chin in his clasped hands grief and comfort Rev. James Simons and other members of the clergy rushed to the crash site on September 11th to offer comfort and spiritual care. There was just profound sadness. You know, it's one of those moments where everything's going to change, but you don't know what the change is. Rev. James Simons, St. Michael of the Valley Episcopal Church. Next, a photo of an individual embracing an American Red Cross worker. Support. The American Red Cross is designated by Congress to respond to aviation disasters to support the families of the victims. The American Red Cross staffs a family assistance center to help family members. They organize memorial services in Somerset County for the families. The American Red Cross and the Salvation Army remain at the site for weeks, supporting the responders with meals, counseling, and other assistance. We're trained to provide support, comfort, and food in times of disaster, but this was the most difficult work I've ever done for the Red Cross. It was such an emotional time for everyone. Donna Bates, American Red Cross volunteer at Flight 93. Another photograph shows hundreds of individuals with cameras and recording equipment. Media. Local reporters and photographers reach the scene of the crash first, followed by media from around the country and the world. The scene here. The only way to describe it is haunting. There's a 45-foot crater in the ground. There is debris scattered through much of the woods behind that crater. Reporter John Meyer, WJAC-TV, Johnstown, Pennsylvania, broadcasting live from the scene on September 11th. Stretching along the width of the display, at about two feet from the bottom, is an angled ledge that extends about 16 inches out from the display. At the far left is a television monitor with aerial images of the crash site. At 11.30 a.m., Corporal Jeff Braid of the Pennsylvania State Police begins filming the crash site from a helicopter. Immediately to the right, within a wide plexiglass case, is some of the wreckage of Flight 93. Items include electrical wires, pieces of cloth, and fragments of metal and plastic. The violence of the 563-mile-per-hour crash reduces the 154-foot-long aircraft to unrecognizable fragments. This debris and thousands of other pieces of wire, metal, and insulation is scattered across acres of field and woodland. One of the few large pieces of debris recovered measures just 6 feet by 7 feet. At the far right side of the ledge is a tactile model of the crater created by the crash of Flight 93. The inverted plane crashes into ground previously disturbed by mining, leaving a crater. On this model, you can feel the impression of the wings, tail, and engines. The explosion throws aircraft debris and fuel into a nearby hemlock grove, and fire destroys portions of about 100 trees. Three points on the model are labeled A, B, and C, and they correspond to a key on a placard at right, also noted in Braille. Model key. A. Fuselage impression. B. Wing impression. C. Burned hemlock trees. The next section of our tour is the first side of Exhibit 4. 8. Exhibit 4A. You are at the first side of Exhibit 4. This display presents an overview of the investigation concerning 9-11 and the Flight 93 crash. The tall panel at right is titled, A Crime Scene. The Flight 93 investigation is crucial to the FBI's effort to seek justice and prevent future attacks. At the World Trade Center and Pentagon, it is nearly impossible for investigators to find evidence amid the burning rubble. But the Flight 93 site quickly yields important information. The FBI's first priority is to recover the black boxes— Hundreds of investigators comb the crash site collecting evidence. Other agents interview those who received calls from Flight 93 and follow thousands of leads. Investigators are able to recover only a small percentage of the human remains. Scientists working with the coroner identify all on board through DNA analysis. This field becomes the final resting place of the passengers and crew. Below this text, mounted on the panel, is an orange and white black box. On its side are the words, flight recorder, do not open. Feel free to explore it with your hands. It's labeled cockpit voice recorder in print and in braille. And additional text reads, recovering the black boxes is critical to the investigation of the crash site. This is a replica of the cockpit voice recorder that captures the voices and sounds of the final 31 minutes of Flight 93. The display extends to the right and features a background photo mural of a densely packed wooded area. At the top of the display, this was probably the most significant case the FBI had ever worked and it took us all over the world. It was a massive investigation. Section Chief Kenneth M. Cabe, Investigative Response Section, FBI Laboratory. On the left side of the display is a photo of a woman outdoors reviewing papers while on a cell phone. She is Special Agent Andrea Damon. Andrea Dauman, special agent and team leader of the FBI's Pittsburgh Evidence Response Team, reaches the crash site about 3 p.m. on September 11th. She supervises the work of FBI teams from Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Cincinnati, Detroit, Chicago, Indianapolis, Louisville, and Knoxville. They painstakingly comb the debris field inch by inch, and examine material excavated from the crater. The teams gather fragments of the plane, recover the remains and personal effects of the passengers and crew, and search for evidence. The FBI works with experts from the National Transportation Safety Board, the Federal Aviation Administration, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, and United Airlines. Hundreds of Pennsylvania state police troopers set up a perimeter around the site and provide 24-hour security. In all, about 1,500 people from more than 70 agencies respond to the incident. Just to the right are two evidence photos of the crumpled orange and white black box. One depicts the voice recorder as it was excavated from a depth of 15 feet in the crater. The other shows the Flight Recorder at a depth of 25 feet. The Black Boxes The Black Boxes record and store valuable information about a flight. The Cockpit Voice Recorder captures sounds in the cockpit, and the Flight Data Recorder preserves technical information about the flight. They are painted orange to aid in recovery. These photographs show both instruments as they are recovered from the crater on September 13th and 14th, 2001. Flight 93's black boxes prove critical to the investigation of the September 11th attacks, since no boxes are recovered at the World Trade Center and at the Pentagon, only the flight data recorder yields information. Further to the right is a plexiglass case holding debris from the Flight 93 aircraft, the partial nose number, 5491, a crushed piece of the fuselage, pierced by metal fragments, and a crumpled piece of the tail section. Below is a plexiglass case with remnants of a routine flight. Items used in the daily tasks of a flight crew are recovered at the crash site. The items include twisted pieces of silverware, a charred seat belt, a torn safety instructions card, a burned altitude chart, and a stained flight attendance guide. A step to the right is a television monitor inset at the top of a tall panel. The FBI leads an intensive 13-day investigation at the Flight 93 crash site. In this video, investigators describe the search for evidence and the recovery effort. Below the text, hanging on the panel, are four handsets you can use to listen to the video. The next panel, under the heading FBI Laboratory, displays evidence photos of a red bandana and two of numerous weapons, a utility tool, and a knife recovered at the crash site evidence. Evidence recovered at the Flight 93 crash site is used in the sentencing trial of terrorist Zacharias Moussaoui. Evidence photos of a singed handwritten document, The Last Night. The FBI recovers the terrorist's handwritten instructions titled The Last Night from the crash site and finds the same document in the possessions of the other September 11th hijackers and a photo of a blue visa card, a link to al-Qaeda. A bank card belonging to the terrorist pilot on Flight 93 is a key piece of evidence recovered at the crash site. It is found at the base of a tree in the hemlock grove. With the account number, investigators begin to trace the flow of money to the terrorists. Another step to the right is a photo of a bespectacled man standing near the crash site, his eyes downcast. Somerset County Coroner Wally Miller. As FBI evidence response teams meticulously excavate the crater and canvas the debris field, Somerset County Coroner Wally Miller establishes a temporary morgue at a nearby National Guard armory. At the morgue, the Federally Deployed Disaster Mortuary Operational Response Team, D-MORT, processes the human remains using fingerprints, x-rays, dental records, and ultimately DNA. As a result, every person on the plane is positively identified. In the months following the crash, many families of the passengers and crew come to know and trust coroner Miller in February 2002 he meets with them as a group to discuss the return of their loved ones remains and personal effects he protects the site as a coroner's scene until 2005 the small-town coroner develops a lasting bond with these families below this text is another plexiglass case displaying personal effects Many personal effects of the passengers and crew are recovered at the crash site, examined by the FBI, and eventually returned to their families. A U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service Refuge Officer Badge. Richard Guadagno, manager of Humboldt Bay National Wildlife Refuge, is going home to California on Flight 93. His badge is recovered at the crash site. An identification badge featuring the color photo of a young man. Todd Beamer is traveling on business for the Oracle Corporation and carries his employee identification badge with him on the plane. A singed driver's license. Colleen Fraser is flying to a conference on the West Coast. Her New Jersey driver's license is recovered at the crash site. A vial of soil. The American Red Cross gives each family member a small vial of soil from the crash site at Memorial Services in September 2001. The next section of our tour is the second side of Exhibit 4. 9. Exhibit 4B You are at the second side of Exhibit 4. Displayed here are photographs of the 40 passengers and crew of Flight 93. On the tall panel at left, titled Heroic and Noble Action, displays the following text. Heroic and Noble Action. On September 11th, these 40 men and women faced the unimaginable. Their determined actions in the skies above this place prevented an even greater loss to the nation. They came from varied backgrounds and from across the nation and around the world. Their photographs record moments of lives richly lived. The Congressional Gold Medal, authorized by the Fallen Heroes Act of 2011, recognizes the heroic and noble actions of the passengers and crew on Flight 93. Below the text, in a small plexiglass case inset within the panel, is a display of both sides of the gold congressional medal. Mounted evenly in the display at right are posed and candid portraits of the passengers and crew of Flight 93. Patrick Joseph Driscoll Jane C. Folger Colleen L. Fraser, Jeremy Logan Glick, Toshia Kuge, Richard J. Guadagno, Christine Ann Snyder, Jean Hoadley Peterson, Honor Elizabeth Guenio, Wanda Anita Green, John Talignani Mark David Rothenberg, Linda Gronlund, Donald Arthur Peterson. Nicole Carol Miller. Edward Porter Felt. Leroy Homer. Cece Ross Lyles. Donald Freeman Green. Waleska Martinez. Andrew Sonny Garcia. Kristen Osterholm White-Gold. Joseph DeLuca, Christian Adams, Lauren Katuzzi grancolas Mark Bingham, Marion R. Britton, Patricia Cushing, Todd M. Beamer, Deora Francis Bodley, Jason M. Dahl, Georgine Rose Corrigan, Lorraine G. Bay. Sandy Waugh Bradshaw, Hilda Marson, Alan Anthony Bevin, Louis J. Nackie II, Thomas E. Burnett, Jr., Deborah Jacobs Welsh, William Joseph Cashman. Also on display behind two plexiglass cases are a book entitled A Life of Integrity. Todd Beamer was studying this book with his churchmen's group prior to his trip on September 11th. Flight attendant Deborah Welsh proudly wore her United Airlines uniform hat on every flight. And a bronze medal for exceptional service, Marion Britton, a 21-year employee of the U.S. Census Bureau, earned several honors for leadership and contributions to the Bureau. Items belonging to First Officer Leroy Homer. He received his Air Force wings in 1988. The patch on his flight jumpsuit identified him as a USAF pilot and parachutist. When Homer joined United Airlines in 1995, he wore this emblem on his hat and Homer's luggage tag with his United ID and his base. Along the width of the display, at about two feet from the bottom, is a ledge that juts out about 16 inches. Inset within the ledge are three video displays. Each of them display the identical program and interactive video that provides access to information, photos, objects, and tributes for each of the passengers and crew. Just to the right of each monitor are controls that allow you to scroll through the pages for each individual, and above the controls is a jack into which you may plug headphones. The next section of our tour is the first side of Exhibit 5. 10. Exhibit 5A you are at the first side of Exhibit 5. This display presents a selection of objects left at the crash site by visitors in tribute to the passengers and crew. The tall panel at right reads, I Remember. In many cultures, there is a long tradition of leaving offerings at sites of violence. Memorials are created as places for shared remembering and expressions of mourning where visitors may leave something of themselves for public consideration. By the afternoon of September 11th, people began to leave offerings near the Flight 93 crash site, creating temporary memorials. Thousands of tributes and acts of remembrance, both spontaneous and planned, are reminders of the outpouring of emotion prompted by the terrorist attack. These tributes are a way to express In a public space, I remember. Above the displays to the right are the words, A common field one day, a field of honor forever. Captain Stephen Ruda, Los Angeles City Fire Department. The display consists of a large glass case filled with tribute items left at the Flight 93 memorial. Inside the glass display case is a television monitor that includes video of a speech by President George W. Bush, 2001 to 2009, the display of a massive U.S. flag, about as wide as nine car lengths, unfurled near the crash site, and a floral tribute with a U.S. flag. A caption reads, the United States will never forget. The tribute items on display include a tribute quilt, including Captain Ruda's message, a common field one day, a field of honor forever. Panels on the quilt feature U.S. flags, armed services insignia, and one panel for each of the letters in HEROES. Several crucifixes, rosaries, a copy of the New Testament, a stained-glass panel depicting a cross, and a St. Christopher medal. Yellow, green, red, blue, and white Buddhist prayer flags, pendants of the Star of David, a small red Buddha statue, a toy dove with the peace symbol on its chest, two plush bears, a Virginia license plate reading UNTD-93, a handwritten note on notebook paper, Dear Passengers, Thank you for saving the White House and America. You were very brave to do that. Were you scared? Thank you. Sincerely, Dane Sundman. And a typed missive. God chose our fields of Shanksville to lay you to rest. We'll take care of you now. You are the heroes of all America. This is our thanks. God bless the crew and passengers of Flight 93. Sam and Connie Stevanis and Jeff Cooper, Indian Lake. Three small sculptures in the shape of angels with red and white stripes and a blue field with white stars. They're labeled Thomas E. Burritt Jr., flight attendant C.C. Lyles, and Colleen L. Fraser. The sculptures stand in front of a color photo of other angels with American flags, a copy of the Constitution of the United States and the Declaration of Independence, three paper cranes, and a teddy bear wearing a bib inscribed with the words, Let's Roll. A North Carolina license plate inscribed, D-E-O-R-A, Diora. A photo of John Talignani, Labeled Soldier, Father, Hero. An inscribed basketball, baseball, and a softball. Several small model airplanes. Small tiles with inscriptions including the Flight of Heroes. Heroes are not visible from the outside, but they are a hero on the inside. And a heart with the word, Forgive. A handwritten note. I was in D.C., across from the White House, on the top floor of the tallest building nearby. The way I figure it, you all gave your life for me. I won't waste it. I promise. C.H. And a stand, displaying the U.S., New Zealand, Japanese, German, and Puerto Rican flags. Several gray rocks— Manhattan bedrock. These pieces of Manhattan cyst are from the bedrock beneath the foundations of One World Trade Center and the National 9-11 Memorial. Engineers constructing the New York City skyscraper and the memorial brought the rocks to incorporate in Flight 93 National Memorial to create a link between the two very different places touched by the terrorist attacks. Several patches from fire and police departments, the United States Capitol Police, District of Columbia Fire and EMS, and the City of New York Police Department. A model ship, USS Somerset. The United States Navy named three new amphibious docking ships in memory of those who were killed in the September 11th attack. USS New York, USS Arlington, and USS Somerset. The seal of the USS Somerset shows the ship's motto, Courage Through Adversity, in Latin. A black fireman's jacket with a yellow stripe around its base. The back of the jacket is signed by over a dozen individuals. Shanksville VFD Bunker Coat. Chanksville Volunteer Fire Department was one of the first response units to arrive at the crash site on September 11th. Through the years, numerous volunteer firefighters have left bunker coats and helmets in tribute to Flight 93. A U.S. flag folded in a triangular shape and encased in plexiglass. Tribute Flag Many flags flown at specific locations and at special events have been presented to Flight 93. They are expressions of gratitude and respect for the passengers and crew members. The flag on display was flown at the U.S. Naval Base Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, over Camp Delta by the Joint Detention Group, Joint Task Force Guantanamo, Operation Enduring Freedom, in honor of of the passengers and crew members of flight 93 several metal pow mia bracelets during the vietnam war many wore bracelets to remember american prisoners of war and those missing in action after september 11th this practice was revived to remember those who were killed in the terrorist attack and soldiers and civilians who died in the subsequent fighting in Afghanistan and Iraq. A pair of military boots with crusted mud. Specialist Joel Hutchison, 10th Mountain Division, 1st Battalion, 87th Infantry Regiment, wore these boots during Operation Anaconda in Afghanistan from September 2001 to April 2002. He left this message and his boots at the Flight 93 temporary memorial in August 2004. R.I.P. Flight 93. Thank you for fighting back. Badges from the County Sheriff, Somerset County, Firefighter, Hickory Grove Fire Department, Oklahoma, Emergency Medical Services, and Chief Ambulance Squad Montalto, Pennsylvania, an inscribed tree branch, thoughts carved in wood. A Pennsylvania State Police trooper carved this campfire stick as he passed the nights securing the wooded perimeter of the crash site in September 2001. Ten years later, the stick came back to the site as a tribute to Flight 93. The next section of our tour is the second side of Exhibit 5. 11. Exhibit 5B You are at the second side of Exhibit 5. It displays the names of all the lives lost on September 11, 2001. At left, text on a tall panel reads, Reminders to a Nation Individual acts of remembrance have led to permanent memorials at the World Trade Center site, at the Pentagon, and here at the Flight 93 crash site. These memorials honor the nearly 3,000 lives lost that day. On September 11th, terrorism reached across oceans once thought to insulate the United States. In response, the U.S. led a coalition of international forces to Afghanistan and the Middle East. A worldwide search for al-Qaeda operatives resulted in the killing of Osama bin Laden in 2011. To uncover new threats and prevent acts of terrorism, US and foreign nations now share intelligence and cooperate in unprecedented ways. A heightened awareness of terrorism is part of life in the 21st century. As the country adapts to this new reality, a common field near Shanksville remains a testament to the courage of 40 people and a reminder to an entire nation. The entire display to the right, but for three video monitors at the center, is a wall of names in small print. The names of all individuals who lost their lives during the attacks of September 11th 2001. The names are arranged alphabetically and grouped by the flights and buildings in which they perished, left to right, top to bottom, American Airlines Flight 11, United Airlines Flight 175, World Trade Center, American Airlines Flight 77, Pentagon, United Airlines Flight 93 a total of 2,977 people. The three monitors in the center display images of the memorials at the three crash sites. National September 11th Memorial. The memorial at the site of the World Trade Center in New York City consists of two massive pools set within the footprints of the Twin Towers. Waterfalls cascade 30 feet to the base of each pool. Bronze panels surrounding the pools are inscribed with the names of the 2,983 people killed by terrorists in the attacks of February 26, 1993 and September 11, 2001. The memorial opened on September 12, 2011. Flight 93, National Memorial. The memorial is a designed landscape of more than 1,000 acres in the Pennsylvania countryside. From a hilltop overlook, 40 groves of trees lead to a walkway at the edge of the crash site. A white marble wall is engraved with the names of the 40 passengers and crew members killed in the attack. Their final resting place is marked with a large sandstone boulder. The memorial opened on September 10, 2011. National 9-11 Pentagon Memorial. The memorial at the Pentagon in Arlington, Virginia, consists of 184 stainless steel and granite benches, each cantilevered over a lighted pool of flowing water. The age and location of each victim at the time of the attack is conveyed through the design. Military and civilian employees and the passengers and flight crew who lost their lives in the attack are honored. The memorial opened on September 11, 2008. The next section of our tour is the Overlook Window and Conclusion. Twelve. Overlook Window and Conclusion At the far end of the center, a glass wall overlooks, to the right, the crash site and the wall of names. From a position at the glass wall, you will see the direction of the flight path of Flight 93 moving from right to left. The crash site is in front of a heavily wooded field, about 200 feet beyond a sloping black wall. The site includes the remains of a hemlock grove damaged by the crash of Flight 93. At the base of the grove is a light brown boulder, approximately 10 feet wide by four feet tall, which marks the crash site. The wall of names encompasses 40 inscribed white marble panels honoring the passengers and crew. The names of Flight 93's passengers and crew are carved into the marble panels. The panels are set on an angle. The angle of the wall and the black granite walkway mark a portion of the flight path. A low black wall and walkway stretches leftward from the Wall of Names to a concrete and glass visitor shelter. Along the wall, commemorative mementos have been placed in these areas by visitors to the site. The items include caps, coins, bracelets, patches, and floral tributes. On the opposite side of the walkway, benches are provided as places of rest and contemplation. The walkway reflects the tilted rectangles that serve as a theme for the site's design. In the distance, tree-covered rolling hills grace the surroundings. For more information, please ask a Park staff member. They will be happy to assist. They can also direct you to a tactile braille labeled map of the entire Flight 93 Memorial site. This concludes our tour of the Flight 93 National Memorial. Please be sure to return your audio player to the information desk in the visitor center. Park staff will assist you and help with any information you may need to further explore the visitor center and the memorial's surrounding area. To learn how you can be a part of the historic effort to preserve the memorial, please visit www.honorflight93.org. For additional information about the site, please visit www.nps.gov. Slash F-L-N-I. We hope you've enjoyed your audio-described tour of the Flight 93 National Memorial and invite you to return again soon. Please be sure to return your audio tour player to the information desk.